Hello, and welcome to Artbox. I'm your host, Jason. In this episode, I sit down with Todd Van Amen at Van Amen Gallery. The gallery just opened up, and we talked about why he opened the gallery, and we go over his process with working with artists and discuss the artwork in the first show in the space. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Todd, why don't you, uh, if you could, just introduce yourself and uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself and how, why, and where, and what got you started into doing this. Of course. Uh, my name is Todd Von Amen. Uh, I recently moved to Washington, D.C. from New York City, where I had been working there for about 10 years. Uh, I opened a gallery called The Von Amen Company just a couple of days ago. <laughs> Literally a couple of days ago. Yeah, with a solo show by an artist named Tabor Roback. The gallery is... 3,500 square foot space in an old tobacco warehouse on Katie's Alley in Georgetown, which is a pretty amazing design district. I'm one of a few art gallery spaces in the area, and I'd say that I'm sort of the only one like me in the area. I, I Yes, you are. <laughs> um, very contemporary, and, and I would say, well, I have my own definitions of contemporary. I define contemporary two ways. I think of it as uh, you got people who do like landscapes and uh, portraits of today. Mm-hmm. Then you have what I call a non-contemporary, you know, which is new emerging type of technologies, new ways of doing things, new, new uh, processes all that jazz. And uh, I, I think that uh, your gallery kind of, as of right now, fits into that category of the non-traditional contemporary. But like I said, that's just my definition. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sure that uh, there's someone out there who would probably correct me on that very quickly. But yeah, your, your gallery is very um, unique in essence. And I, I think that's awesome. I'm glad that you came here and, and did that and brought some of that kind of uh, non-traditional flavor here, especially in, in the design district in, in Georgetown. Yeah, yeah. So I met the landlords here and basically just told them what I had in mind and they loved the idea and they've been incredibly supportive with me. They've basically developed this whole area as a high-end design, uh, a high-end design neighborhood with, you know, with a really high dose of sophistication. And it's a place where to buy furniture and to buy, you know, home fixtures and well and, and hope also, to buy some art by the way exactly so i thought it seemed like a great place to open an art gallery it's definitely an experiment as washington dc does not have that many art galleries no they do not it has quite a few museums and in my opinion some of the most exceptional museums in the country and those museums continue to get better the Hirshhorn is terrific uh the phillips is terrific the smithsonian national gallery Portrait you, Gallery, you have Glenn, Sam. Yep. Yeah. You have Glenstone that's just opened up yep. in Potomac, Maryland. You have the De La Cruz Museum at Georgetown University, which yep. is just a few blocks away. But not a whole lot of people coming down from New York and doing a gallery. No, but so, that is that is going against the grain in that regard. It's going against the grain for sure. And believe me, I've gotten a lot of weird looks from my colleagues about opening a gallery in Washington, D.C., but I have absolutely no doubt that it's a good idea. And well, I'm, I'm going to kind of be biased and say I think it is, too. Well, yeah, well, you know, and I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that everybody's happy for you to be here. Whilst if you open a gallery in New York City, they've got plenty of them already, you know. Yeah, you can literally walk like every other block and find at least two galleries. There's literally thousands of them. There's literally thousands, yeah. So my logic is... You know, I let's just say somebody is coming from Tallahassee, Florida, 
to New York City, and this person is an art collector, or this is this is an important person that you need to know in Tallahassee. They go to New York City, they have to choose between over 2,000 contemporary art galleries to visit. Say they're in town for three days. They're going to make it to 20 tops. So that's a 1% success rate. Say the same person comes to Washington, D.C. They see the museum shows and they see a couple of galleries. So they can have a 100% success rate in terms of what they see within the city limits of Washington, D.C. So just in the first couple of days of being open, I've had interna international or out of town visitors every single day and people whom I know. And so you don't get that in New York City. That is something that I did not know about the city. Huh. Yeah, I mean, here it is very international, uh, especially when you go up to like Embassy Row around up in DuPont Circle. Um, it, it's this neighborhood also has a lot of international flair in terms of people coming in and out of it. And, and the area we're in is also very picturesque. You know, don't forget down it's the beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Because don't forget down the street, you know, where they shot the famous stairs, you know, so that's uh, for the for um, oh, what? that's definitely a personal draw is the exorcist. Steps. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I blanked on that one. Yeah. How can I? Oh, man, someone's going to kill me for that. But um, but yeah, the you know, you got the, the stairs so that the people go for that, you know, I think we'd all like to forget watching the exorcist because it's so disturbing and terrifying. Yeah, true. But it was also very um, uh, you have to give them credit where credit's due in terms of their their special effects. Though. No kidding. But, especially given what they had in those days. Um, yeah. So, so basically, uh, it, you you made the conscious decision to come down here for for more of exposure for artists and for uh, just for uh, kind of a contemporary work genre kind of thing. I would say, you know, you know, I I, I worked in art galleries for about ten years. Um, I, did, I I chose a city outside of New York or Los Angeles predominantly so that I could work with the artists I wanted to work with. Mm. Actually, that's what I like to hear. Not everybody wants to do a show in Washington, DC. Some people might say no, but a lot of people say no, no matter where you are. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of a numbers game, but in my experience, the thing that I find most interesting and most rewarding about what I do is developing very deep relationships with artists. So my understanding is, since I know so many of these artists already, if I say, hey, I have a 3,320 foot facility in Washington, DC, do you wanna make something together? That's a lot more appealing than saying, I have a 500 square foot tenement storefront on the Lower East Side, yeah. would you like to do something together? I've found that my success rate has been a lot higher. A lot more people are interested in doing a show in Washington, D.C. than in New York City. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and from that perspective, it is somewhat of an untapped market. Yeah. And um, even in the D.C. area, there are some really forward-thinking artists in, in what the work they're doing. Yeah. And, and that's a community of people that I am very eager to get to know better. Yeah. And that's simply a symptom of having been in New York City for so long and having been in DC relatively well you're essentially moving to another time. a new community basically yeah. so yeah so I'm trying to meet people you know I'm trying to meet as many people as I possibly can and yeah, don't swipe right <laughs> or was it left I don't know I don't have uh, I have no I, have I, that, I, so. I luckily 
uh, I, I luckily uh, missed the missed the that Tinder phase. Yeah, yeah same, same yeah, here. Yeah, I, yeah. I, got <laughs> I, I it, it seems kind of fun, but uh, you know, if you don't need it, then I don't know. I well, not to get on that tangent, but it does seem kind of um, kind of kind of sad. <laughs> well, it, you know, and frankly, the exhibition that we're sitting in right now has quite a bit to do with that. It does. Yeah. No, really, it's definitely um, tapping on the, the vibes of what's going on now in terms of because people are living more and more in their phones and on online. Yeah. So when I when I work with an artist, you know, I don't really care how popular they are with collectors. I don't really care how much their work costs. I don't even really care how many museums own their work. The one question I ask myself before I start working on a show is will this artist be in a textbook in 25 years? Mm. And I try to picture myself in, well, that would be the year 2044. I'm, I'm in 2044 and let's say I'm at an art school and I'm looking at a teacher's curriculum. Is this artist part of the curriculum? And I think what would cause that to happen or what would prevent that from happening? Is this work derivative? Does this have to do with is this too similar to an artist from another time period? Does this work have anything to do with the world we live in? Because you look at any point in art history and the stuff we remember, it has a hard connection to the surrounding world and what was going on at that point in time. It's true. There's nothing that is made entirely out of time that is relevant or important. Of course, it's much easier to track that in the early 20th century, late 19th century, just because there was such a sort of order of operations. There was kind of a procedure. Very linear. There was a procedure yeah. to, to, to art where, you know, one thing gets done and then another thing gets done. But I try to imagine, you know, what if one thing was done and then something, something that didn't happen ended up happening, you know? That's kind of what we're facing in contemporary art now is you know hmm. there isn't this solid linear direction that things are going Every, you know there's so many options and very few limits but you try to imagine you know maybe table roback is going in one direction while another artist is going in another it's a you yeah. know it, it, it spreads out like a root system on a tree um so the real criteria i think is does this have any relevance to the way people feel in 2019 and can people relate to it my experience and my belief is that most artwork that's being made today that is super relevant to our experience i think that those artists are using technology in one way or another they're 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 taking that experience of screen time as i like to call it and implementing it into artwork and and, and sort of teasing those ideas out yeah, well, it's, I can't disagree with that. You're so Tabor right. is definitely not the only person doing that. Uh, there are lots of good, there's a lot of really good artists who are doing that. I just have a very good relationship with Tabor Roback and I am also quite sure that he will be in the textbook in 25 years. Well, I, I can see where you're coming from because you know, um, looking at some of the work in here and, uh, and when I went to the opening, mm. It, it definitely, it, he's having a conversation that most people are not having yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are people in the crypto space because he has a piece behind me that has you know cryptocurrency all over the stuff, and he has Bitcoin uh, animation in a pig. I am familiar with the crypto world, so that most people are not having that kind of uh, thought process or conversation just yet. There's a lot to be worried about uh, in, 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 in 2019, I think. And I think one of the issues with the contemporary art world is how aloof it is to that. I'm not a big fan of political art, you know, and I don't really believe that an artwork can c- cause a revolution or change well, the course of politics I, it just there it isn't may a, have but eh, it's, it, there isn't a big enough audience unfortunately right, you know right. uh and and i'm i try to be as self-aware of that as possible you know is that this this is reaching a very small amount of people you know and 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 that's just the way it is you know there's just not enough people who are interested in it yeah but i do think that there's a lot of things that elicit very strong reactions from thoughtful people that are happening in the world right now uh one of the things that makes me the most angry is cryptocurrency (laughs) you're not the only one my friend (laughs) did you know i mean and not for the same reasons that a lot of people are you know i I don't care if it's useful or useless or whatever all i know is that that cryptocurrency mining uses as much electricity as we produce using solar panels in the united states so imagine all of that progress erased for this speculative apparatus that has no use. Um, that is basically, in my belief, an implement of greed, and that's all there is to it. You know, it, it's just a it's a container and a vehicle for greed. And I think that the piece that's right behind you is that's what it's about. You know, is the sort of fickleness of the human psyche, its inability to remain concerned for long periods of time, its ability to get distracted very quickly. Very quickly, yeah. And I think that that's kind of, that's where the conversations, that's something that this show is extrapolating with every piece, you know? This kind of ability for the human mind to not care, to get distracted, to get satisfied. Mm. Uh, What? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like, You can hold an idea in your mind briefly, you know, something like climate change or something like what the hell are we going to do about, you know, these corporations (laughs) that are quickly taking away all of our civil liberties and how do I enjoy Instagram at the same time, you know? Well, Um, and that's kind of how I felt when I looked at the mini Jumbotron that he had. You know, aside from Piggy, that's that's the piece that really... That, that's where these ideas are concentrated because you think of a jumbotron and you think of it as a, a distraction machine, a, an excitement machine, yeah. you know? So you're at a Wizards game and you're looking up at halftime and, you know, like, that thing is just trying to pump you up. You know, that, that, that's all that thing's doing. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, exactly. just trying to get you excited, you know, um, and to enjoy the show. Uh, well, I do like the one that says line forms here because yeah. when you uh, transport that into an actual real jumbotron and then you... <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, what are you hell? ready? The line forms here. What the hell would that <laughs> signify, right? Yeah. So that piece, you know, it, it has two sides. You know, each side is a mirror image of the other. So there, right. there are only two videos on it. One of them is really just all these kind of hype signifiers, you know, like on your feet, you know, yeah. make some noise, get fired up. Yeah. But then you look at the adjacent screen and it's it's telling a much more elliptical, complicated story, you know, about how much pressure we're under to feel happy these days and to feel, to access mental health and to take care of ourselves and to 
basically placate ourselves despite how harsh conditions are in the world. Well, not to mention too about how mental health in this country is always up and down. You always have a quick solution, quick fix for it, but not a long-term solution for right. it. Right. You know. And I would say that this artist is looking at the intersection between biohacking, which has been present in the antidepressant revolution and the Adderall and Ritalin re revolution for many years. But, you know, running parallel to that is the advent of machine learning and neural networks um, and, and their various corporate applications. Right. And I think that this shows really about how those two lanes on the highway are starting to get closer and closer and closer and closer. And I think that this is something that everybody is terrified of. But are not having the conversation yet. Or they're not having small conversations. they conversation. don't care, you know? Or, I mean, right. That's, or they don't right. care. I mean, you know, but the issue is that how are we supposed to care? You know, there, we have so little control over this stuff. Mm. The only real solution is to just roll with it, kind of, you know? And the and the applications of machine learning and artificial intelligence and neural networks are making our lives relatively easier. But if you look at the statistics, it's actually not helping anybody. You know, it's not actually helping anybody and it's not making businesses more profitable. It's simply, it's, a, it's the apparatus that's consolidating power away from people and away from governments and into corporate hierarchies and structures. Yeah. And this is something that is absolutely terrifying. But can I be terrified about this all day long? I don't think I couldn't. I don't you know. know. I couldn't I, do that. I don't know. I, I have to agree with that. I don't know if I could either because so I would break down. You know, basically stress levels are increasing. And, you know, Robert Sapolsky, who's one of my favorite neurologists who's at Stanford and studies baboons, he talks about stress. And he talks about what stress is supposed to do. I mean, stress is supposed to get you out of a dangerous situation or help you get food or resources that you need. In an animal, it's only supposed to last for a few minutes. Tops. Yeah. And that's a healthy response. A stress rep response is healthy. You're not supposed to be stressed all day. Uh, a hippopotamus, unless he is in, in, a, in an extremely bad situation, is not going to be stressed all day but many humans are stressed all day. I mean, you asked me earlier if I'm losing sleep over this exhibition, you yeah. know, and it's a funny thought, you know, cause you know, you're doing what you love. I'm doing what I love, you know, why should I be losing sleep? You know, yeah, that's a good point. Frank, you know, is it because I'm worried that I'm not going to make enough money off of this art? You or know? is it you lose sleep because you're excited or maybe I'm excited, you know, but I've definitely lost sleep over being excited, but I've also lost sleep over being stressed, you know, yeah. something that anti-anxiety, anti-depressant pharmaceuticals are able to... We got a pill for that. ...solve, you know? So basically you have this increasing stress correlated with the consolidation of wealth and then this solution for it, which is chemical. And I think that that's really what this show is about, you know? Uh, at its core. And I think that's something that we're going to be talking about in 25 years. We're going to be talking about that thing that happened. Oh, yeah. In, you know, in the early 21st century where technology was used as the apparatus to take away all power and autonomy from people and put it in the hands of machines. Yeah, I, I for one, am not for that. 
I like using the machines as tools. Yeah, uh, obviously the yeah, recording that's what equipment they're supposed to be. They're, they're tools. Yeah, I do think that AI can't solve all of our problems. I also feel that chemicals can't solve all of our problems. And when it comes to trying to use tech to solve everything, you just can't. Well, it's dangerous and it's it, scary. It, it's become dangerous. Really interesting discussion recently was how our development of artificial intelligence relates or compares to humans' treatment of animals. Mm. We've decided that animals are less intelligent than us. Um, yeah. And we've used that as a justification to treat them poorly throughout all of history, from factory farms to well, circuses to yeah. animal testing to all these things. And one interesting thought experiment is if we are able to develop a, an artificial mind that's more intelligent than us and more ubiquitous than us and more limitless than us, how do you think that thing's going to treat us, you know? Yeah. Because we're going to be less intelligent. Right. Is it going to use the same justification to treat us badly the same way that we treated animals badly? Right. I mean, I, I couldn't give you a reason why, but I would say, yes, it would. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think it, that's it's a logical, a, it's a rhetorical question. Well, it, you know, is, uh, it is because, but, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to look at us with respect and, and uh, even if we created it, you know, and you, you could make the argument that, you know, we're descended from animals. We are animals. Yeah. A lot of creatures, a lot of vertebrates lived and died before us to make homo sapiens possible. And look, look how we're treating them. You know, they, they created us, you know, look how we're treating them. Look yeah. how we're treating sharks and other things that have been here much longer than we have. And we'll probably be here after we're all gone. Yeah, probably, you know. Going back with, to the environmental with, aspect just of... With uh, more, uh, just with more plastic in their stomachs, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they will have the geological time to learn how to digest plastic. And humans are not going to have that time. No, we're, I mean, we've fast-tracked our evolution to such, an, such a logical extreme that technology is now completely ubiquitous from wearables to ride sharing apps to other you know other networked these things the watches yeah the, the the watches you know um you know it, tracking it's all, devices it's all happening happening way too fast and yep. you know it's going to create feedback loops the same way that climate change is causing feedback loops and which this is another aspect of the show that yeah. is going on i mean i frankly i don't know if there's going to be anyone around in 25 years to look at this work well, let's hope so. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I don't hope. I don't hope they're not. But you know, it's it's uncertain. You know. Yeah, it is always uncertain. But you know, you also can rely on somewhat of a causability to help kind of solve if there will be a future or not. Right. You know. Um, but that's if believe in the the cause and effect philosophy. Right. Some people don't. They like to think of random chance still, and, or you know, like you can make up your own fate. But uh, I'm not in that camp personally. <laughs> um, I do think I do believe in cause and effect. Yeah. And, but I, you know, I, I also think, I think that art has always been about te technology, you know, even, yeah, even no. the early stuff, you know, well, or if it's not representing technology, it's also kind of a rebuke of technology. Yeah. I mean, when you think of the, uh, uh, cause everyone loves the impressionist, but that that's a good group to say that at the same time you had cameras being developed and, you know, cameras were basically being able to recreate almost instantly, you know, um, the environment. Right. But, you know, there's at that point in time that, you know, a camera could not do certain things, you know, a camera right. could not generate a, a non-objective environment, you know, and, and yeah. a, a camera could not create on its own an abstraction, you know, right. it could certainly capture one, you, you know, capture like one, if, if but you it couldn't could, create one. Maybe right. took a picture of 
something that's kind of ineffable, like a a cloud or you know, or a or a close up of bricks or a seashell, or seashell or something. Yeah. You know, like you could get something like that, but you could create a thought experiment that impressionism was a form of technological advancement because they were creating images that were unprecedented. Well, and they did have science at the time, like you just said. They had science and they were starting to understand how the eye works. They were understanding how cognition works in, in right. different ways. And so you, you, you look at that and you, and you think you can easily make the argument that Impressionism was the aesthetic manifestation of what was happening at that time, scientifically, technologically, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. And you look at a lot of work being made today, it's either super old fashioned, you know, super old fashioned or completely irrelevant to what is really going on right now. You know, I mean, Tabor is basically taking what we look at on, on our phones, what we watch on TV, what we see on billboards, etc., and is basically kind of making an argument for how those things really work. You know, we understand how they work on a tech technological basis, but we don't we don't really know what they are doing to us. We don't we don't really know what right, how they work know, psychologically. Yeah and, yeah, and evolutionarily and you know, we we definitely know that chemistry and structure of our brains is changing quite quickly as a result of our use of technology, but we don't really have a way to step back and illustrate that. No, we do not. We, we do can, not have. We can write books about it. We can, you know, do podcasts and radio shows about it. But oh yeah, you can talk about it all day. To me, it's it, it seems very important to actually make art objects about that, you know, and and art objects that elicit emotions and you know can actually make people think differently, which I think has always been the point of art, or at least kind of like your radio show it serves as an archive. Yeah. It can't be overtly political in the same way that voting can be political or doing political activism can be political. Mm -hmm. I personally think that if you want to be a political person, you should be knocking on doors and voting and making political contributions to people you believe in and also espousing your opinions to other people. Yeah, if you if they like it or not. If you're truth, an artist, yeah. I think you should be making impressions. You should be reflecting on what you're seeing mm -hmm. and thinking about things as a human document, because I think the history of art is an amazing human document. Its purpose is not to change the world. Its purpose is to talk about it and reflect upon it and also be that archive. And that's why museums make sense. You know, of course, a museum can do something radical and it's amazing when it does. Yeah. But, you know, I think we really go to museums to, to see that documentation of human history. Well, would you say then that a museum is trying to attempt to make uh, a linear kind of history about this, you think? Or earlier, uh, you know, we, you, you'd mentioned, uh, you know, how... And I agree with you that how a lot of modern art nowadays is just spread out in so many different directions. Do you think that museums try to put uh, order to this chaos? Yeah, yeah. Definitely, and I think it's it's the big challenge now, just not only because, and you know, and I think it's a very positive thing that a lot more people are able to make art than they did before. And therefore there's just a lot more bits of data basically that need to be organized in the past. You know, I, you know, I, there are definitely structural problems to the art world. I don't fault the museums much. I don't fault the galleries much. I fault the academy, basically. I, I, you know, the art schools. Yeah. And they're because these are these are for-profit 
companies most most of all not necessarily for profit but they definitely are conscious about how much tuition money they make and so yeah. they can't just give everybody a scholarship i don't understand why that is i i, I really don't uh i don't understand why somebody can't get their mfa for free uh i don't understand why this needs to send them into debt for the rest of their lives it makes me upset that a lot of artists need to adjust what they're making in order to fulfill their financial obligations yep um i think that that has a tremendous amount to do with the state mm. of education in the united states and you know not obviously not to mention fewer people are getting good art education mm. in public high school or public middle school or elementary school right or unless you go to an art high school or art college yeah. i mean you know i i'm one of those people who did go through art high school and art college yeah so same here and i'm very lucky to be able to do that and i same here and yeah. i know that i am i'm aware of my privilege in that sense yes so to kind of go back to your question i think we're dealing with a lot of structural problems in the people who are able in the apparatus that a lot that decides who is an artist and who is not. But of those sort of candidates, the museum still does have quite a lot to sort through to basically tell a story and to make sure that that story is preserved and- And just. Yeah, and kept safe. And I think that museums do an incredibly good job of that. But the amount of resources at their disposal is limited. Yes, unfortunately it is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the you know the artist Arthur Jaffa, who's one of my favorite artists, he talks about how you know, in the inner cities of the United States, there's with almost certainty a better basketball player than Michael Jordan, mm. who just was not given those opportunities, or a better singer than Aretha Franklin, who was just not given those opportunities. And that's just reality. I think that there are ways, there are political ways to mitigate that and make it a little bit better. I mean, the United States is rock bottom in that respect, rock bottom compared to anywhere, any other developed country. Just simply the fact that these people that, you know, these artists in particular, because we're talking about visual artists, yeah. need to worry about their student loans and their medical bills. And, and making sure they can have a roof over their head and food. It just doesn't make any sense. And I think that we would have a much more robust institutional experience if people were just treated better in general. And we'd see, we'd have better art, without no, a doubt. Would. We would, yeah. Or, or different and better and more thoughtful conversations, so yeah. to speak, as yeah. we were yeah. talking about. And, you know, and... Doing a gallery is, it's an extremely granular thing. And the reason that I have this show up right now is a product of a lot of different elements. You know, this is an artist who is already kind of anointed by institutions. He's held in major museum collections. He's collected by very major collectors. And he's also somebody who I have crossed paths with. And the reason that he and I cross paths uh, has a lot of different layers to it. But that's basically why keeping a space open for a long time is really important because you need to develop a wider context because I think the galleries are also the keepers of that history. Yeah, oh, you're right, yeah. Because we, you know, I mean, it's our, it's our livelihood to preserve this stuff, you know, to keep track of where it all is, first of all. First of all, yeah. Document it well, provide texts on the work and make sure that all the museum curators see it or as many museum curators see it as possible so that it can be part of that story but even so just the history of an art gallery is a great piece of time as well yeah though there has been galleries that have been known in the past a long time ago but i would say you know i was having this conversation recently with a 
colleague and it's never the gallery that's remembered. <laughs> never. No, you got never. a point. Maybe anecdotally the gallery is remembered. I'm trying to think of one. Yeah, you can't. I mean, no, there's nothing that rolls off the, my tongue that I could think of. When we think of Jean-Michel Basquiat, we do not think of Mary Boone Gallery. We think of no, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yes. No, you're, you're right. When we think about Jeff Koons, we do not think about International with Monument Gallery on the on the East Village. Nope. I mean, they were incredible for what they did, but that legacy vanishes. You know, all that's left is the artist and the art and the community of artists. And we're really just here to facilitate that and, you know, make a living doing what we love to do and sort of help keep that stuff organized, you know, keep that history organized and also to be a, a gathering place in yeah. a sense. And it does become a gathering place, you know, because like you said, it, it helps start that, that conversation and, um, and you have to start somewhere. You can't just start, um, you know, and it does need to have a group of people come together to have that kind of conversation. Cause otherwise you just have that conversation with yourself or one other person. Yeah. I mean, just think about it like a bag of oranges from the grocery store, you know, I mean, it has that, it has that plastic net bag to it, you know, and that's essential for getting the oranges from the grocery store to your house, right. you know? And then the oranges stay together in your fruit bowl or whatever, and then the, the bag's gone, you know? And, that's and, true. You know, and, 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 and the gallery is that basically invisible plastic bag that keeps the oranges together, you know? Well, I mean, that's a very sad yet romantic uh, analogy. I, <laughs> I liked it as I, you know, as it came out of my mouth. No, I, 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 I like it. No, I mean, because that, that is a good point. I mean, it, it it's more like, um, you're right. I, I can't try to think of another way of saying it, but you're, I can't because I'm thinking more of a, you're like the, a vehicle yeah. to, to move the, the conversation or a dialogue or a story along. Yeah. And that vehicle can change, it can go away, it can break down and, and what have you. But mm -hmm. the the but it keeps the conversation alive. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, you know, we get to we get to do these we get to do this great stuff, you know. And yeah. Obviously it's much better than doing a whole lot of things for a living. That's true. Well it, it, it's all relative. Some people love to dig ditches, other people yeah, won't. Yeah. But. Some people love, you know, working at the credit card company, you know. <laughs> I, I, I can't relate to that, but uh, neither could I. I know, no, or people like to work at investment banks. I can't relate to that. You know, no, neither could uh, I. I just can't imagine caring about anything but this. Um, so as long as I get to, you know, use this to buy groceries, you know, I'm totally happy. Or, or, or I like to say a, a fancy cardboard box. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but the thing is, is that is it a challenge, and only for the strong to do kind of thing? And I don't believe in that. Because it, it, you have to have motivation and a passion for it to begin with. And that could be for anything from, like I just said, from digging ditches to, you know, working as a card, you know, credit card processor, you know, that kind of stuff. You, you got to have some kind of passion for it or some kind of drive. Well, I think self-awareness is really the, that's what's, I, that, that, that's what I think I, that's what I think has gotten me to where I am is just self-awareness and, yeah. you know, knowing what my limitations are and knowing what. I might not be able to do, but also at the same time knowing what that I knowing what I can do. Yeah, you know, this is a pretty good expression of it. You know, like I could not afford this kind of space in such a beautiful place in New York. You know, uh, this was a this was an incredibly lucky thing to happen. I think that it's good for everybody involved. That's when you know you're in a good situation is when everybody involved is being is benefiting from it. I would say that that's definitely what this is, is, you know, nobody's getting screwed here, you know? Yeah. I'm barely even competing with anybody. But that's, it's really important to find 
opportunities like that, especially in this business. Well, and when you find it, you have to take it. You have to take it. And, you know, and you, but you also don't want to be doing anything that will be hurting anybody else. Um, right. I, 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 cause I don't think that art should ever do that. I, I, you know, I don't think that, I mean, the cool thing about Georgetown is it's, <laughs> it's already gentrified, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it, yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> true. That there's the one, no one's going to argue with that. Yeah. And of course, you know, a lot of people are, upset about galleries being kind of gentrification catalysts um, in yeah. different cities. Yeah, well, it's it's no different here. Of course, yeah. But, you know, I think it's really reaching an inflection point in Los Angeles right now as, you know, uh, people, yeah, are, right. yeah. people are moving to downtown and local communities are really upset about it, you know? And if I learned that a local community was very upset about what I was doing here, I would be very upset and I would doubt what I was doing. Yeah. Um, if I opened a gallery in New York City and I knew that I was stepping on a lot of people's toes to make decisions, I would not be happy about that. So being in DC where it just seems like this is a net positive for everybody involved, that makes this not feel very challenging to me. You know, the downside is extremely low. The risk is very low. It doesn't mean that it isn't ambitious, but it's not going to harm anybody. No, but also don't forget too, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. Right, right. I mean, you definitely have to, you definitely have to kind of sing for your supper a little bit more yeah. uh, in DC <laughs> than you do in New York where you can, the methodology of, of doing an art gallery was you open it up, you sat behind your desk and you waited for hundreds of important people to walk in. Uh, here you, you really have to attract people. Um, and so that's kind of, that's sort of my job uh, is, is, is to just attract people here and, you know, make sure that the shows are interesting and make sure that everybody who works here is friendly and uh, <laughs> nobody's alienated. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thought provoking, which this show is definitely thought provoking. It's no, you know, this, this show is no picnic. You know? No, it's, it's, it, it's, it, not. it's certainly not. I mean, it's, it's full of things that could potentially upset people, but I don't think there's anything here that would offend anybody. Well, no, it, it could. And he, here's my theory. <laughs> if you're a, uh, a Bitcoin bro. Okay, you uh, probably... okay maybe, I, maybe I'll offend some Bitcoin bros, but I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that, but it won't, <laughs> yeah. it won't offend anybody in a position of weakness. I don't think art should ever do. No, no, uh, art should be, always be inclusive. I think that, yeah, it should be inclusive and it should never abuse anybody, abuse weakness in any way. Um, yeah. I think that if this show challenges power structures, that great. But I think that that's a thought provoking thing to do. I, I don't think it's a cruel or insensitive thing to do. Some people might disagree with me, you know, some, maybe some people in the government might disagree with me. <laughs> uh, you know, the, you know, yeah, they're probably they're is. arresting Julian Assange right now. Uh, <laughs> and I read a great headline. It was like, Juli they're going to punish Julian Assange for their mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. And we actually. can, you know, and we can expect plenty more of that, you know. Uh, well, that's a, that that's a valid point. I mean, that is just a hard of things to come. I mean, this day and age, you know, oh, wow, well, we better um, wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> So what are the gallery hours? We're open uh, Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay. And we also have a contact uh, email, info at vonamon.co, V-O-N-A-M-M-O-N.co. So if you're not able to come during those hours, send an email there, and I will try to come and meet you here. 
We also have an Instagram where we keep up with everything that's going on with us, which is at Von Amen, V-O-N-A-M-M-O-N. So definitely follow us. Yeah, which uh, Artbox is, by the way. So what? The radio show is actually following you. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Great. Thank yeah. you. No, no problem. <laughs> so that's a, that's the best way to keep track of us, I think. I, I actually, I've had many conversations with people and, and you're right. It, Instagram is a great way of doing that. Until there's another quote unquote, you know, um, developer platform that's just as good, if not better, mm-hmm. you know, I'll probably eventually go to that. But for now, Instagram is is a great way. Like I was talking to some people last week, it basically helps the um, potential clients, enthusiasts, or, uh, other artists, artists themselves and, and galleries all kind of see the, uh, the what's going on real time almost in, in conversation and then kind of makes them beg to come actually to the space. Yeah, the most effective thing is definitely the one-on-one conversation, but I actually feel that that it, it facilitates that quite nicely yeah, these I, days. Yeah. Um, I think that I, I have more in-person conversations now about what I do than in re, in, in years past. Yeah, and, and get ready for many more, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so. So do you want to talk about what's coming up next or are you gonna keep that one underneath your uh, uh Yeah, I'm playing my cards a little close to the okay. chest there, but um, you can definitely expect. Well, once again, go on Instagram and- Exactly, uh, you know, you can see what I've been posting in the past and get a pretty good sense of this kind of stuff I like and the stuff that I intend to exhibit on my own. Um, but more will be revealed. <laughs> well, uh, uh, thank you very much for sitting down and taking the time thank to do you. this. Yeah, and, this is um, great. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. I want to say thank you to Todd Von Amman for taking the time for the interview. If you want to learn more information about Von Amman Gallery, you can go to the website at vonamman.co. You can also go to Von Amman's Instagram page at Von Amman. And don't forget to go to our website, artboxdmv.com. To hear this full-length episode and past episodes, go to Mixcloud.com and search for Artbox and the DNV. Our Instagram is ArtboxDNV, and our Twitter handle is ArtDNV. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>